Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and to Sound Bites, our daily, or excuse me, our weekly look at our food system, our food, and our environment. Uh, and you're listening to here to Sound Bites here on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community where we broadcast from. And of course, we are rebroadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSTL 90.7 FM. And uh, on our way to this conversation, I will remind you all to join me on January the 30th at the Governor Calvert House in Annapolis at 7 a.m. Uh, for our 12th annual Annapolis Summit. This is our program that features our, our live conversations with Maryland's new political leaders, including Governor-elect Larry Hogan, uh, Senate President Mike Miller, and House Speaker Michael Bush to talk about the upcoming 2015 legislative session. You can join us, have, you, and answer, have your questions answered by those elected officials, and have your opinions heard that morning for Annapolis Summit. So please join us there. Go to thedailyrecord.com slash annapolis-summit. That's dailyrecord.com slash annapolis forward slash annapolis dash summit or call claire sheehan at 443-524-8101 for ticket information uh to join us that morning but come have breakfast and have a dialogue with your elected political officials here in the state of maryland we are now about to have a conversation about what the top Food stories and food-related stories were uh, in this last year in our in our in our nation. Jenny Hopkinson joins us once again, the food and agriculture reporter for Politico.com. And Jenny, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we read your new story early this morning. and Realized we have to add you on this segment as well. So good to have you here. <laughs> uh, and Tom Philpot is with us, Mother Jones food and ag reporter, co-founder of Maverick Farms in North Carolina. And Tom, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Hey, Mark. And we'll be joined shortly by Nathaniel Johnson, uh, who will be calling in, who's the food writer at Grist and teaches at the University of California Berkeley School of Journalism and author of All Natural, A Skeptic's Quest to Discover the Natural Approach to Diet, Childbirth, Healing, and Environment Really Keeps Us Healthier and Happier. So, and you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at org. <clears throat> Log on to our Facebook pages. Or you can tweet me at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888. So let me ask you, let me start off, uh, Jenny. What was number one on your list, on the top of your list here, for the things that really were kind of really very earth-shaking around issues of our, the, food, the future of our food? I mean, I don't, I, number one on the list, and, and maybe this is cheating, but I, and I don't know how earth-shaking it was, but it had to happen, <laughs> was, was reauthorization of the farm bill, um, which happened kind of early in 2014. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that was a long battle. That was more than a year overdue, um, you know, and that <clears throat> gave certainty to farmers. It um, kind of did a lot for the organic industry, for example. It did, you know, it, it touches everything, really, and it, it's one of those laws that every every time it has to be reauthorized, the, the question is, well, what does this mean for me as, as kind of Joe on the street? And really, it means a lot um, because, you know, we all eat, and that does kind of dictate where those commodities come from and, and their, their certainty. So I, it, it's probably cheating because it's one of those regular things, and it's certainly not perhaps the sexiest thing that happened, but I have to go with the farm bill. Well, no, and I think that it, that was a huge thing because of the battles that took place. And, and I'm, I'm wondering what your perspective on that is, Tom Philpott. Um, yeah, I thought it was a, also kind of a huge story for 2014. And one thing about it that really stuck with me was that it had some major reform in it of the way the commodities are subsidized. There's a shift away from direct payments to insurance programs for farmers. But really, uh, to me, what the big news was, was that it didn't really change the incentives of farming at a time of, and I'll get into what my two big stories were for 2014. Sure, we'll get there, yeah, absolutely. A time of of climate change and deep uncertainty about the future of agriculture, this this farm bill didn't do anything to get us ready for that. So what do you mean by incentives? What, What did you mean by that? Well, so the incentives... Before the farm bill were, were passed and after, uh, were pretty much the same. And that is that if you're a farmer in the Midwest, your incentive is to grow as much as possible of these two big crops, corn and soybeans. And that was true when it was propped up by direct payments. And it was all, it's also true when it's propped up by this pretty generous insurance program where your premiums are subsidized 
And if there's a big crop failure or if crop prices drop as they did this year, then you get, you're insured to get a certain amount of revenue. And so that keeps you going, sort of planting these crops um, into the future. Um, at a time when, as I'll get into in a second, um, it's really destroying the soil of the Midwest. So I, I want to come back to this. I think you, you raised a, kind of a very critical issue here about what Whiteman's might portend for the future. And I think this is a grist for the mill for a, a longer conversation as well. Just raised Tom and Nathaniel Johnson's on the phone as well. Nathaniel, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Hey, great to be here. You've heard what our other commentators have said. Why don't you leap in on that? Um, well, they, uh, responding to, to what they just said. Sure. Start there. Well, uh, I, I, I agree that the farm bill was a huge uh, story, and I agree that there was there are definitely some tweaks in the farm bill, but it's not a significant uh, departure. And it's interesting because people on both the right and the left had been arguing that the subsidy payments, you know, whether through direct payment or through insurance, uh, should be eliminated, and. Uh, that really went by the wayside as part of this grand bargain to, you know, on the left to preserve food stamps. And on the right, uh, you got the Midwestern conservatives representing farm states saying, we really want to keep these uh, insurance subsidies. And so um, so that traditional uh, bargain was, was made again this year. So I, I guess, what does that mean, Jenny, that a great flair and, and, and um, uh, brouhaha was made over the farm bill, but that really, in, in, in essence, once it, once it was passed, it didn't change very much? It, yeah, it didn't change a huge amount. I mean, the food stamps were cut um, somewhat, but, you know, we should remember that the vast majority of the money from the farm bill goes to food stamps, um, and... And that was sort of the main thing that liberals were campaigning to preserve. Right. So they, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't cash in to try and address some of the issues that, that Tom is talking about. And Jenny? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, with a bill as big as the, the farm bill, everything is, is going to be a compromise at the end of the day. Um, and, yeah, that, that means that, you know, sometimes you have to give on certain things, uh, you know, like like subsidies um, to to get the food stamps in there, um, and then unfortunately, you know, SNAP is a huge program. It's what eighty billion dollars a year, um, and that, and that was a, a heavy lift I think for Democrats um, uh, to to get done, and, and certainly an issue that I think we're going to be hearing more about um, kind of in this Congress now that the Republicans have taken over. I you know no I, maybe this is maybe I'm too in Washington, but but no no legislation is unfortunately perfect, um, and. Uh, you know, I'm, I certainly don't think that the farm bill is perfect, but the, the I think the the blood that was shed to get it done, and, and when you hear you know Senator Stabenow and Congressman Lucas talk about it, you know, the, this is this is unfortunately what we have. Um, you know, and, and at least all of these issues were talked about. At least eliminating subsidies was a discussion that was had, and, and that might not have happened. Uh, to the degree it did, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, um, you know, and, and the joys of the farm bill is that we we get to do this all over again in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, I, it's a prospect no one is looking forward to, but but you know maybe maybe in you know when we get to that point, things like climate change and things like farm subsidies can can have more of a, a place at the table, um, and so. Uh, I guess at least these conversations are happening is, is the best as a, a D.C.-based reporter that, that I can say. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, Tom, let me go to you next year about your, your, top, your, your top story for the year, which you think were the things we need to be aware of. Well, I mean, there's a lot of issues, but one thing that struck me in 2014 was I started the year um, realizing that the Midwest, where we grow, you know, a huge portion of our food, Almost all of the corn and soy, which goes into the meat factories, this major food production machine in the Midwest, is losing soil at an alarming rate. Um, and the, the style of farming that, that goes on there um, is uh, basically put soil at risk by hammering the land year after year with the same two crops, um, dumping chemicals on. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the soil erosion crisis in the Midwest has been, a, it's been a thing for a long time, for at least a century. 
And scientists thought that it was solved. They thought that, uh, that we were losing about five tons of topsoil per acre in the Midwest. And natural root regeneration builds about five tons of organic matter or of, uh, of soil uh, every year. So that they figured that we're at about a, a, a break-even point. We weren't losing soil or gaining soil. Um, but I uh, found some research from a really great professor at Iowa State University who uh, says, first of all, that the sustainable rate of soil loss is probably a lot lower than that, that soils produce a lot more slowly than that. And second of all, the common measures we're using aren't taking to, into account uh, one of the main sources of soil erosion, which is when big storms hit the Midwest and just sort of carry huge amounts of soil away, that the, the measures that we're, that we're using weren't, weren't measuring that. And so he thinks that we might be losing soil at about five or six or more times the rate of natural production. And so you think about that, you know, this is something that we take for granted. This is something that we subsidize and ensure, uh, you know, maximum production of these commodities there. And in doing so, we're literally washing away this resource. Um, and then it wasn't very long after that um, when I and everyone else discovered, this is like, you know, last winter, um, discovered that California, which is the source of uh, a huge portion of the fruits and vegetables that we consume, um, was, in, was in this crisis. And it wasn't just the drought. It wasn't just this sort of uh, remarkable three-year drought that is happening right now. But even before the drought, the, um, the, the state's farmers in uh, certain very important areas like the Central Valley were drawing down water tables way faster than they can be, they could naturally be, be produced, reproduced, um, uh, and the drought compounded that dramatically. But it's a much more long-term problem. And so I just, you know, in 2014, just sort of took a step back and said, hmm, you know, we're uh, we're abusing uh, these really important and critical water resources in California, drawing them down faster than they can be replenished um, in in paralleling agriculture in parts of that state, which is so important. And we're doing the same thing in the bread basket. Um, These are massive problems that are only going to get worse with climate change. And then, you know, you see this farm bill lurch forward that doesn't do anything to address it. And and to me, that was a big story for me, is that the, the ecological basis of our agriculture in these two critical places is looking really, really shaky. Nathaniel, how about yeah. is that you, Nathaniel? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, as Wes Jackson says, uh, we've never uh, found a solution for agriculture. Agriculture is fundamentally unsustainable, and uh, so we we where, wherever it's being done, we you run into these. Uh, ecological indicators that that uh, we're losing soil and uh, you know the the market is causing uh, farmers to overtax the the water table and it, there was just a great piece in uh, California Sunday magazine about uh, <clears throat> this black township in the um, central valley where people are they're all they all depend on their wells and these people who have lived there for generations uh, are now getting dust coming out of the taps because uh, <clears throat> basically because people are putting in these almond groves nearby and sinking deeper wells. And it's, you know, they, they're drinking the milkshake and whoever grabs the water first gets it. So, you know, I, and there is some waking up that's happening around this. You know, there, there are some regulations going in around how much um, money or how much, how much money you can draw out of the ground. That's right. How much water you can draw out of the ground. Um, but it's, uh, it's certainly, it certainly is a, a wake up call. So um, I think that this is something that we need to really pick up on in a, in a longer, deeper discussion that Tom Philpott just raised, uh, because I think that it, it it's, it's one of the kind of, um, unknown, I was going to say, stories that need to be unearthed and I didn't mean that as a pun, but, um, and I think that's something that we need to have a much deeper and longer discussion, which I'm, and I'm glad you, Tom, raised that issue and, and then Jenny raised one she raised. Um, let, let me throw another one out to the three of you. And, and Nathaniel, because you've written about this, start here, uh, which is this been – one of the other stories in, in this year were the battles over GMOs and GMO labeling. 
that have right. taken place in America. That, to me, seems to be another one of the front-burner stories, uh, and it very much will come up, as we'll talk about in the next segment, in the coming Congress around labeling uh, will, be an, will be a huge issue uh, in the Ag Committee and others coming up. So start on that, would you, Nathaniel? Yeah, well, this is an issue that's been uh, a big issue four years and will continue to be a, a big issue. Um, so there were two states. Well, Vermont passed passed a law on GMO labeling through uh, the representative process through the state house, and then uh, Oregon and and uh, Colorado tried to pass um, voter initiatives through direct democracy and got way outspent by um, agribusiness and um, grocers and uh, failed in both those cases. Oregon, it failed by something like uh, less than a thousand votes. It was very, very close. Um, and so, and and the people that are hot on, on GMO labeling have said that they'll try more um, direct democracy approaches um, in the very near future. Um, so I think we can expect to see this happening um, again and again. And, you know, the odds are that eventually it'll pass. Although, I mean, we should remember that Oregon um, is a very blue state in, in the midterm election where everything else went conservative. Oregon went bluer um, and still, and, you know, they passed a marijuana legalization initiative on this one, but uh, didn't pass the GMO labeling. So it's, it's still this very tricky, tough issue. And at the same time, we're going to see uh, in Washington um, the business interests trying to do uh, a kind of end run around these um, state initiatives and making a federal law which will, which will preempt them and, and prevent um, mandatory labeling of GMOs. And Jenny, that's something you wrote about in your, in your last article. Yeah, um, I yeah. There's definitely an, an effort by the food industry and the, the biotech industry in Washington D.C. Um, you know, Representative Mike Pompeo from Kansas has spearheaded the effort. He had a bill in the last session uh, that would preempt state labeling efforts. It would um, kind of codify a voluntary GMO-free labeling kind of scheme, and it would um, basically lob to FDA, kind of more officially put the onus on the FDA to, to kind of do, you know, determine whether or not something needs to be labeled. It would only be for a safety issue. Um, I mean, the pro-labeling side has said, you know, this this isn't good enough. You know, it's, it's uh, an end run is definitely one of the terms that's been used for it. Um, it's, it's not particularly a popular bill because it, you know, it, it the argument they've said is, is that consumers have the right to know and, and a voluntary, you know, GMO-free system doesn't doesn't do that. Um, you know, and it, it's a tricky issue. Uh, you know, it, they, there was a hearing actually on the last day of um, the 2014 session uh, on the bill, and several Democrats, I mean, Henry Waxman among them, who, yes, is no longer in, in Congress, but, but he kind of said, you know, I, I'm not sure that, you know, state-by-state labeling efforts are, are the way to go. And that's a, a big voice, a, a big kind of pro-food you know, I'm pro knowing what's in your food voice saying that. Um, so it, it will be very interesting. And, and, you know, as far as state labeling efforts, I mean, I, I think the the dream for pro, pro labeling groups is to get a ballot initiative passed, as Nathaniel said, um, you know, to, because that's the voice of the voters. It's not a legislature doing this. But, you know, this kind of try, try again uh, process that they're going for, I mean, it, I think there's some soul searching within the movement of whether or not, you know, of, of which states should be targeted, kind of what the message should be, um, and, and kind of when it should happen, because industry is now 4-0, um, and, it, it's, and they've done it with the same argument every time. They've kind of poked holes in these ballot initiatives. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, whether or not one is put forth in, in 2015. It's, it's a total off year, but, but, you know, it was an off year when, they, when uh, Washington State had a ballot initiative in in 2013, um, you know, or kind of whether or not the movement can wait until 2016, and and then kind of what what that ballot initiative will look like. Um, it, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how that side of, of this debate moves forward. Tom, 
Well, I mean, this is obviously something that the industry, both the food industry, which sort of makes the, you know, Coke with a high fructose corn syrup in it and the, you know, potato chip fried in GMO soybean oil, um, plus the biotech industry, which makes the seeds and the pesticides, is something that, that they really don't want to see happen. They don't want to um, see like a, a label saying that, that that this particular food, this particular bag of chips, this particular soda contains GMOs um, for, for obvious reasons. They, they think it will prejudice consumers against it um, or whatever. And so in all these initiatives, in the failed California one and the Oregon one and the Washington one and all the ones that have failed, they've poured millions and millions of dollars into defeating them. Um, and, you know, the story was the same every time. Polls showed at the start of the election season that consumers overwhelmingly favored them. And then as the uh, drumbeat of negative ads paid for by these millions started to come, you know, come out, by the end they would lose very, you know, California I think was maybe 10 points, is that right, Nathaniel? And then by the time you get to Oregon, you get a recount, it's so close. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, and so the, the congressional maneuver is obviously about uh, saving some of that money. Like, you know, instead of paying $25, $30 million per election, let's just forestall it at the congressional level and get it, get it over with, and we'll see if that happens. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, I'm not, I don't think labels are the be-all and end-all, but I, but I will say that I would be a lot more sympathetic to anti-label arguments if we had a really rigorous way of regulating GMOs in this country and um, one thing, one thing, thing that's really significant that um, happened in '14, and there was just a New York Times article about this a couple days ago, is that the USDA's system for evaluating new GMO crops has almost completely broken down. And what I mean by that is that when they originally started to regulate, when they originally started to roll out GMO, GMO crops in the '80s, they, they they made a very particular decision to classify them in a certain way for USDA purposes, and not to get too technical, but to classify them as plant pests. <laughs> and that was based on the technical way that they were making GMOs, and it didn't really have to do with plant pests. It was just sort of arcane legal stuff. And um, in the 20 or 25 years since, the USDA has um, been able to look at these crops and at least give an, an environmental assessment of them, not right. necessarily with any teeth, based on this, uh, on this legal framework. Well, the GMO industry has moved away from using plant pests and creating GMOs, and therefore the uh, USDA system for, for looking at them doesn't hold teeth anymore. And so now you're seeing these products go, uh, you know, basically straight to market without USDA um, even looking at them. And, you know, I don't think the USDA's method of re regulation has been particularly effective but it has left a paper trail. It has left documentation of things like um, weed resistance, um, so, uh, gene flow, and all of that is is gone. And in in uh, in lieu of a way to regulate the crops, I think yeah, consumers are absolutely right to say, okay, well, since you're not going to regulate them, at least let me know if they're in my food. So well, I, you should you should note that the, the FDA still does regulate them if they're food. You're just talking about. Uh, a graph that people wouldn't that's that's what the usda isn't regulating it's a graph that you know no, people no. use on their lawn there's, there's it's, it's not that it's when a novel crop so we have, we have to take a very brief break here, but let me do this. I, I want to let you three finish the conversation because we have another one to start. But if you all want to come back with a final uh, – Jenny, I know you were just trying to jump in and Nathaniel was trying to jump in. Uh, so we're going to take a very brief break. I'm going to let you both come back and kind of take a quick minute to f finish out your thoughts on that. Then we'll jump into our conversation about the future of, uh, of nutrition and food in this next Congress. So stay with us. And I, I, Jenny, I want to let you get your last one on Nathaniel as well before we take a break.
Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites here on WEA 80.9 FM. Also heard in WSDL 90.7 FM over on the Eastern Shore. But uh, what I want to do here is finish this out very quickly because I heard uh, my guests both trying to leap in here to have a final thought. Uh, And Jenny, what were you trying to say? Um, You know, there have been several uh, crops that have been genetically modified using like novel techniques um, that haven't had to go through... USDA's regulatory process that, that um, uh, Tom was just talking about. But, uh, you know, the problem there is, is that there's no law really governing these things. And you can say that for things like climate change. You can say that for things like nanomaterials. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, I, I see the argument that it should be labeled. But, yes, FDA does still look at these things. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of a, a tricky tightrope to walk, you know, at the same time, these companies are trying to put forward these solutions that, that perhaps could help with things like climate change and soil erosion, um, you know, and these novel technologies. And so I think it's a fine balance of, of how much you say, well, you know, we should be heavily regulating this, but we need these kind of solutions to all of these problems that we've kind of talked about in the past half an hour. So I, I, I'm not necessarily a proponent of either side of that, but I definitely think there needs to be a balancing act going on. Um, and the private sector who's coming up with these kind of novel solutions or, or hopefully novel solutions, um, you know, is, is you know, in an interesting place to take a lead on it. So we, I, I want to let that, Andrew Jenny was trying to jump in there and Nathaniel had a word before we left. And this is, these, you, the three of you have done a great job in this half to half hour. I want to, I appreciate the issues you've raised and you've also given us grist, uh, no pun intended for your, for who you write for Nathaniel, but um, you've given us grist for our mill for the coming year. Uh, in terms of kind of really probing the, the GMO question in a much deeper way, maybe with the three of you and others, and to probe uh, the things that Tom raised about uh, corn and soy and the future of soil and water, uh, that, that especially Tom, you and Nathaniel went and talked about. And I, I, so I want to come back to those issues and others over the coming months, and I hope that uh, you all will come back to do that with us because I think these are really very critical discussions, and I appreciate the really varied uh, and intelligent viewpoints that the three of you have when you join us. So, Nathaniel Johnson, thank you so much once again for joining us. Always great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Tom Philpott, same to you, man. Always good to have you here. Great to be here. And we'll do it again. And Jenny Hopkinson, thank you so much for joining us. And you're sticking around for the next segment anyway. Uh, Yes, apparently I am. Okay, good. (laughs) We're going to take a 30-second break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back to our Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, farming, and our environment. Uh, and we are going to talk about um, uh, some of what may lay ahead of us here uh, as we look at what's coming up in Congress. Uh, and the some people, there was this really this piece that we all thought was real that was put up on the web that went viral, saying that the incoming fifteen Republican uh, congressional newly elected uh, congressmen were all going to be pushing to end food stamps. Uh, and so I took it as real. So we started putting together a segment to talk about that. Then realized it was a spoof. Uh, and but we decided, well, you know, there are some issues coming up that I think are very important, and it will be a battle and discussion over the future of nutrition programs and school lunches and even SNAP, that it was still worth our discussion. Uh, and uh, we are here in the studio. Jenny Hopkinson has remained with us, the food and agriculture reporter for Politico. Michael J. Wilson's in studio, the director of Maryland Hunger Solutions, who joins us often. Uh, and Rachel Sheffield is joining us, policy analyst, analyst excuse me, at the Devo Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. And Rachel, Michael, Jenny, uh, good to have the three of you here. Good to be here. Thank you. 410-319-8888 is the number here. You can uh, leap onto our Facebook pages. Uh, tweet me at Mark Steiner. Uh, write to us at talk at steinershow.org. 410-319-8888. So, uh, Michael, you, wanted, you had said something as you were coming through the door here. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by the conversation that they had about the farm bill in the first half hour, which I was listening to. And part of it to me is always there's this misnomer. We call it a farm bill but 80% of it is the nutrition title. 
We call it a farm bill because we've always called it a farm bill when 80% of this really has to do with SNAP and food stamps. And to not understand the importance of that is uh, a mistake. And there were some who actually wanted to, Jenny, in the last session to separate those bills, make one actually a nutrition bill and make one a food bill, farm bill, I mean, right? Yeah, which is an interesting proposition, but but it's kind of a tough thing to do because, you know, the, the, the balance has always been you have your your kind of rural legislators who need the farm side of it, and you have your urban legislators who, who need the nutrition, you know, and the, the SNAP program and the, you know, all of those programs, and that's kind of how you create this grand compromise. So, so splitting it would would have pretty big ramifications, and, and I'm, you know, would really change the balance of the way we address food in this country. Uh, so let's talk a bit about. It. We want to uh, I think that's right. I mean, we, we've always referred to it as a marriage. It's the marriage of farm, of rural interests and urban interests. And you know, nobody was a better steward of that marriage than Bob Dole, who understood that his uh, his rural Kansas former Republican senator, senator from Kansas who ran for president of the United States. That's exactly that right. Man. Former yeah, right. farm, former chairman of the agriculture right, committee. Right. He understood that. For his constituents in Kansas to be able to sell their products in all around the country, uh, um, that they needed as many markets as possible. And so he understood that marriage, and he also knew how to count votes as well as anybody. And so that, that, that was always important. And so the attempt to divorce it in the last Congress was really a bad move, I think. So before we get into more specifics, do you have a, a thought on this, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I certainly the I think it is, would be a good move to uh, separate the two. These are two very different programs, uh, you know, different types of programs that need to be addressed differently. And, you know, they were put together for political reasons. It's, it's political log rolling. And, uh, you know, really, if we're going to see reforms to both of those types of programs, um, separating them, it would be a wise move. And you're shaking your head no. I, I can't well, see what Jenny's head's doing, but... <laughs> right. So, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I describe it as a marriage and a divorce for, for very clear reasons. I mean, I think there's a clear connection between farm policy, agriculture policy, and nutrition policy. We call it a farm bill, but it really is, we really ought to call it an agriculture policy um, about how we deal with all of these issues, whether it's the GMO issues you talked about, whether it's the soil conservation issues, and to, to take those and separate them, I th- think reform is, is the word people are using who want to separate them, but it's really not about reform. So you're seeing it more as a food bill. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how that affects the, the, whether it's urban or, or rural. But let's talk a bit about that because one of the things you said earlier in the program uh, that a big part of this has to do with nutrition. Um, and so there are all kinds of conversations going on. You can see it, and you covered some of this, Jenny, about conversations going on now with the new leadership moving in, the Republican leadership moving into the House and the Senate, well, into the Senate um, especially, um, that that the conversation going on about the future of SNAP, the future of eligibility, the future of what school lunches will be. This is going to be a, a topic of conversation and debate uh, and battle in the Congress in the coming year. I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I think I think all of these kind of entitlement programs uh, are always a source of, of debate and, and kind of controversy. And, and I mean, I think, you know, I think there are some kind of small fixes or small things that the Republicans can do to a program like SNAP um, through the appropriations process, through things like that. Um, you know, as, as far as the whole, I mean, I think reopening the farm bill would be a would be a big, a very tough sell. Um, but you know, you know, people like Senator Pat Roberts, who's expected to take over the Agriculture Committee in the Senate. You know, he's he's a vocal. He was a big opponent of of the SNAP deal, and and so I mean, I think I think there are going to be attempts to to try and kind of change this program where it can be changed. But it, I mean, I think overall that that would be a a tough sell, and so I mean, I think the focus, at least in the short term, and largely because of the reauthorization that's coming up, is, is going to be childhood nutrition and, and school lunch and, and things like that. Um, you know, and, and maybe SNAP will take a back seat to that. So let's talk about one of the things I think that will be coming up, and that has to do with the rules around child nutrition reauthorization and school lunches and the battle that's looming there. Um, and I think that is one of the places you're going to see this fight taking place both in terms of uh, industry and the um, 
the what's the name of the National Association? I'm blocking for a moment, Jenny. Uh, the Global Nutrition Association. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, that, that are that are to to to, to not um, enforce issues around amounts of sugar and salt and fruit that has to be served, and that debate that's taking place, Rachel. Right. So, yeah, there's been a lot of discussion about these, uh, you know, standards for, for school lunches. There's been pushback um, as well. And, you know, this is, again, this is, it's been, you know, overreached by government to define what, you know, what children should be eating, eating for their lunches. Um, it, it, it can be costly for the schools um, on top of, you know, on top of the fact that it, this is, you know, this is government regulation that is, you know, once again, you know, we're seeing... <laughs> You know, uh, you know, children being just, you know, defining down exactly what they, what is put on children's plates in schools, and um, just an example of government overreach um, taking place. So, so I, I mean, let's talk a bit about that. I mean, so one of the things here that, that one of the things that, that I'll go back to Jane in a moment. One of the things Michael that Jenny wrote about in her piece um, that we read this morning was that was the was the cost of this, and it does come with a cost. Uh, we're talking about. Um, I don't have the exact number in, in front of me, but it, it, in, in hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of hours for the industry to do this labeling and and, and to uh, and and those are the costs that they're talking about. Talking about labeling now. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I think you might. I think that's menu labeling. I think you're confusing menu. I am confusing. Like thank you, Jenny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. I mean. Right. Thanks for jumping in and saving me there. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Any, anytime, Mark. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> but but so so going back to the the question we were talking about the school lunches and the, and the, the battles over yeah. what's in those school lunches and sodium and 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 and, so, and, and uh, sugar, sugar and, and the whole no, grains and whole grains and and the food being served and they're saying massive amounts are being thrown away. This is a waste of money. We shouldn't be doing this. This is not the purview of. Of the government, as well as not, and as well as allowing states to decide for themselves. Michael, so this is a federal program. Um, the Institute of Medicine has made recommendations about what the food and nutritional needs for children are. This was not an a, an immediate overreach by government, as some has per, have portrayed it. Um, for years, they've talked about this. The standards have been coming gradually over time, so they didn't have to do this overnight. Um, but there were some, I think, who looked for a political opportunity to try to avoid this. On the merits, there is no one who would argue that our kids shouldn't have a healthier diet. If you look at the obesity, if you look at the health of kids, if you look at childhood diabetes, um, the folks who are arguing against this um, don't make those arguments. It's it's not on a substance. They're making the arguments based on um, politically charged words like government overreach and about um, you know, you know what the what the what the what the government ought to decide. These kids are eating foods that are um, that the that the government is subsidizing, that the USDA is subsidizing, and we want to make sure that they are having as healthy and a nutritious meal as possible. So, and Rachel, before I turn back to Jane, let's pick up on that thought. I mean, that is where the rubber meets the road here, is whether the, the, the argument between uh, the kind of food that we serve in our public school systems and, our, and to our children in all these programs, our free lunch programs and other things, and the kinds of foods that we serve. Um, and it, why, explain why, that, why, from your perspective, that is government overreach. Well, I mean, I'm oh, sorry, were you talking to... I was talking to Rachel just then, then we'll go back to Jenny. Got it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I mean, no one would argue that kids, you know, that we want kids to eat healthy food and that, you know, that it, that it would be in the best interest. But we don't need the, you know, the federal government defining the exact calorie count, uh, you know, sodium content, getting down into these, these details that are so, um, you know, that really can be, you know, addressed at you know, a state level and, you know, give parents greater control about what, you know, what, you know, if they have, you know, if they're, you know, dissatisfied, you know, let them be the ones to to make that case. Um, but, you know, again, the, you know, it, it, it results in, you know, in waste. You know, we hear stories of, you know, children not, you know, getting what they need or getting way too much. Um, and so, you know, again, you know, this is the government trying to make these decisions at, uh, you know, a faraway level and, and not really, you know, like once again, um, missing the mark. 
as well. So what is that political dynamic happening in Congress then, Jenny? Well, I mean, it's it, it's somewhat an interesting one. I mean, it, at the end of the day, and I, I think this was touched on briefly, but, you know, school lunches are subsidized by the government. And, and uh, you know, when you take gov- money from the government, there's always strings attached. Um, but, <laughs> you know, and, and schools do have the choice to leave the federal school lunch program and go out on their own. The argument that SNA has put forward or the School Nutrition Association has put forward is that this is a business, we need to run it like a business, um, which is a fair argument, you know. And, and food waste is not a good thing, and hungry kids aren't a good thing. But at the same time, if you're going to take government money, there are always going to be strings attached. Um, I mean, in, in Congress, you know, that's really the, 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 the fight playing out. I mean, it's kind of both sides, I think, on the show have laid it out pretty well. Um, you know, should, should the government be dictating exactly what's in the content of um, our kids' food? Um, and should schools be getting, you know, money from the government without without these strings attached so it's uh, i mean it's it's a tough one because and and whenever you bring in kids and schools into an issue the politics always get kind of vastly more uh, contentious because they're right. kids and because we want healthy kids um and you know how how do you get that you know a bit but yes the, the government um you know if, if the government isn't saying well, the government does say what, what's healthy. The government comes out with dietary guidelines um, every five years, which is something else that's going to happen this year. We're going to have a new set of those. So it's, it's another one of these balancing acts, and it's definitely caught the interest of Congress. And because the school lunch program um, and the child nutrition program are, are up for reauthorization this year, um, standard five-year reauthorization, you know, these are definitely going to be issues that come up, you know, down to and, and Republicans have, have clearly made it have made it very clear that it's something that they intend to address. There was provisions that were attempted to have included in the appropriations bill that happened at the end of last session that would have that would have you know looked at these issues and kind of required certain things um, that that for the most part didn't make it in. But but it's definitely a marker of of what they intend to do. What are you about to say, Michael? Yeah. So three quick points. Um, there may be waste in school lunches, but the waste is not from hungry kids. Hungry kids are eating their breakfast, they're eating their lunch, and they're not throwing it away. So the perception of waste is the perception of folks who are not looking at the hungry kids in the school. The second thing is parents always have an option. I mean, if you decide you don't like what the school is serving, kids bring their lunch, kids eat breakfast at home, that's always an option. Um, Those kids are never forced to eat those meals. And the third thing is um, studies have shown, by and large, kids are getting healthier meals in schools than they're getting outside of school. So whether it's a parent who stops at McDonald's on the way in or gives their kid a Lunchable for processed food or whatever else they're doing, you know, by and large, school lunches, school breakfasts are healthier than the school, than the meals that they're getting in other places. And so one of the other issues that is tied to this that we all mentioned was that the, 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 both the child nutrition reauthorization is coming up and right. nutrition guidelines are coming out. Yeah. And they're separate, but they're connected. That's exactly right. Um, so what will be the battle and what will be, what will be the, the battle lines and, and, this, and, the, and the kind of fundamental issues on either side of those battle lines, we think, coming up, Jenny? Gosh, um, well... It- <laughs> Lots of things, um, <laughs> you know, the, I, I, and and this this of course things like the dietary guidelines and and the um, uh, nutrition reauthorization aren't happening in a bubble. There's there's also um, you know kind of changes to the nutrition facts panel that FDA is is trying to make, um, and and sodium guidelines and and things like that. I mean, uh, the dietary guidelines. Uh, one of the fights there has been. Um, actually on sustainability of, of, of our food and, and meat and things like that, and, and Congress and its appropriations bill did say, you know, hey, back off of that. Um, you know, but but it'll be interesting to say what they say about things like sugar and salt um, and kind of all of these buzzwords that we've been hearing for so long. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's going to reflect on, um, on the child nutrition reauthorization and kind of what school lunch looks like. I mean, but keep in mind, you know, Healthy Hunger for Kids Act, which is kind of the basis of a lot of these changes to the school nutrition program, uh, was passed in 2010, and, and we're still having this fight now. So I, I certainly don't think that the new dietary guidelines and things like that are, are going to solve this problem. 
And from your perspective, Rachel, what, what, would that, what are the fundamental issues for you and others who wrestle with this at, your, at the Heritage Foundation? Well, and this, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, basically it does come down to that, to that aspect of, you know, government overreach or having the federal government laying out the standards. Um, you know, if, if parents don't like those standards, if children are, you know, if, if this, this isn't, you know, if, if they aren't good standards, well, it's, it's, you know, it's harder to change those once they are, you know, placed in law at the federal level, you know, rather than being left to local local um, authority. And, you know, parents have greater influence there than if they, you know, with, with D.C. bureaucrats so, or politicians. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's the, you know, one of the fundamental issues right there. So it's my hope that child nutrition reauthorization will be, as it has been many times in the past, a bipartisan issue. Um, Speaker Boehner, was chair of the House Education and Workforce Committee and led uh, the discussion on the, the bill for child nutrition in his past. So he understands what, what this issue really means, and he has as good a hold and a knowledge of the Republican conference as anybody in the House, um, you know, despite the recent, recent grumbling. So I, I'm hopeful that it will be a bipartisan effort. If we get into a fight, about what kids should eat and what kids can't eat. And if the Congress is perceived as feeding the kids more sugar, more salt, and making them less healthy, it will be a bad thing for the Congress. So I, I want to kind of conclude here where we think SNAP's going to go. What's going to happen with SNAP here in, 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 in this Congress where the battles will be? We're already seeing certain policy changes where I think I've read, and if I might have this wrong, uh, that over one million people could be dropped uh, who are single people who are unemployment benefits may have run out. Um, they don't have work yet, but they will no longer qualify to, to get the benefits nationally. That could be different changes in state level that different governors can argue about. Uh, but but this, is, oh, this has been a huge fight. And even though that, that piece that uh, came out on the web was, uh, was a farce, there are many people, as, as Jenny had in your article, uh, in this incoming Congress who's saying this has to be reformed, it has to change. Uh, we're spending too much on SNAP and it's a waste and there should be uh, different kind of uh, different ways of doing this. So w w what do you think that battle will be between the White House and Congress uh, coming up? Let me start with you, Jenny, because you've been covering it, then go to our other two guests. Um, well, again, it, it will very much come down to what, um, what Congress can do without reopening the farm bill when it comes to SNAP. Um, and, and again, Pat Roberts, who's expected to take over uh, Senate Ag, and, and Mike Conway, who is taking over House Ag chairmanship, um, have, have both kind of had this in their targets. Um, it's, you know, there's the House Agriculture Committee has, has a new nutrition subcommittee, which is pretty much just tasked with looking at SNAP. Um, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, Conway said that he wants to do a, a review of the program, which is, is fair, but again, the, the question is, what what can you do without reopening it? And and there there are inevitably small maneuvers. I mean, we saw last year, um, you know, the farm bill tried to limit who could receive SNAP, um, and governors found a loophole in heating assistance that basically said, well, you can get more SNAP money um, if you are on heating assistance, and and so governors use that to to give more. More food stamps to their to their citizens. So, so there's there's always tweaks in, in these laws, right? There's always something you can do. Um, the, the question is, with a program like SNAP, with with how politically charged it is, um, you know, what what those fixes can be without reopening the law, and and of course whether or not uh, the White House will will veto it. Um, you know, and, and the White House has been, you know, Michelle Obama very much led the push, but the, the White House has been very vocal on nutrition issues, especially on the children's side, um, you know, especially on school lunch and things like that. Uh, it, it, they've certainly, they're certainly supportive of, the administration is certainly supportive of SNAP, but um, I'm not sure how much they're going to get into that fight, given that it would, you know, without reopening the farm bill, that there's just limited you know, where you can go with right. it. I think, I think the focus from the administration and is, is going to stay, uh, you know, on, on child nutrition, on, on nutrition talk panels, on dietary guidelines, um, and, and things like that. But, but I mean, SNAP is just going to be one of those things that is, is always going to be a, <laughs> a, a firing point in, in, a, in a Republican Congress. So, and we have maybe two minutes left in the segment. So let me lay a final thought from Rachel Sheffield and then a final thought from Michael Wilson. Yeah, uh, well, there is uh, SNAP. Uh, food stamps definitely does need does need reform, and 
you know, it, it's important that 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 discussion begins happening. Um, it, it's 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 basically been. Well, yeah, it's basically the, you know what it was when it was set up 50 years ago, and most importantly, it should include a work requirement uh, that would require able-bodied adults to work, prepare for work, or look for work in exchange for receiving assistance, and that would uh, get the program set it on a foundation to, of promoting self-sufficiency, um, and also ensure that those resources are going to those who are most in need. Closing thoughts from you, Michael. So, really quickly, um, I think. Um, Someone referenced the heat and eat, heat and eat, which was a, a law that had been in, in the books for a long time. Congress tried to eliminate it, made it more expensive, and governors stepped up to make sure the program would be, you know, supported. Democratic and Republican governors. Um, so I, I think that was one of the things of unintended consequences that we've seen from the Congress. Um, the idea that there are people who should not get food stamps because they are eligible because they are adults makes no sense. There are people who are working whose wages don't enable them to have food and housing and survive, even here in Maryland, um, that we should make sure that able-bodied adults without dependents who are eligible also get food stamp benefits. And the notion that we're going to do reform um, is one that I think we can al always have a conversation about, but we have to talk about what reform means. Because the program is not as it was 50 years ago. People now go in, don't use food stamps, they use electronic benefits, we track it better, and everything is better. Michael J. Wilson is Director of Maryland Hunger Solutions. Rachel Sheffield is Policy Analyst with Devos Center for Religion and Civil Society at Heritage Foundation. Jenny Hopkinson, the Food and Agriculture Reporter for Politico. Thank you three so much for joining us here on the Mark Steiner Show on Soundbites. Thanks for Thank you. Me. Good to have you all here. And reminding when we're out of here, please uh, join us on January 30th for the our upcoming Annapolis Summit, your chance to talk to the incoming governor, president of the Senate, uh, and the Speaker of the House. Just go to thedailyrecord.com uh, slash Annapolis-Summit or call Claire Sheehan at 443-524-8101 for tickets. Our lead sponsor is Stevenson University and the Baltimore Gas and Electric Company, Maryland State Education Association, and the Center for a Livable Future. Please join us there. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions for the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer at WEAA is Andrew Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Park Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern and day in history research producer is Sianna Greaves. Theme music by Wal Matthews of Clean Cut. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to it via your favorite podcasting app. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and WSTL 90.7 FM, Marvel Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>